Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. My name is Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, I talked to Tyler Bishop. He is the CMO, that's the Chief Marketing Officer of Ezoic, and you probably realize that Ezoic has been a partial sponsor for some of The Doug Show episodes here on the podcast and on YouTube as well. So I've made some friends over at Ezoic, and Tyler is one of them. We talk about how Tyler got started. He's actually been a part of a few startups and we get into some of the the nitty gritty details. So we talk about how you can make more money online as a publisher with affiliate marketing and display ads. I know personally, I've left a lot of money on the table by just not using display ads for years, just because I was afraid it was going to cannibalize some of the affiliate revenue that I was pulling in, but there's a smarter way to take care of it. And you do have to test, but Tyler lets us know some of the options you may have. And finally, we talk about how YouTube isn't the only way to capitalize on video. He goes into a couple like specific examples. So it was pretty cool to connect with Tyler. We've you know, chatted with each other kind of casually, but we never had like a deeper conversation like we do in this interview. So I want to point out that I was going to speak at the Ezoic conference called Pubtelligence on April 3rd, and it was going to be like my first speaking gig. And I'm grateful that they invited me to go speak. It kind of lit a, a fire under my ass to join Toastmasters, like really get ready. And unfortunately, due to COVID-19, the conference was canceled. It was going to be in New York City. And at a Google office. So kind of a big deal. And I think they're going to end up rescheduling or um, I'm not sure how many of those they have per year on a normal basis. But the point is, I hope that I will be invited to the next, the next one, whatever they reschedule it or wherever it's located. So if you dig the episode, definitely check out some of the other stuff from Tyler Andy Zoic. Before I send it over to the interview, I want to let everybody know that my premium course, Five Figure Niche Site, is going to be open for enrollment starting next week. So hopefully you're listening to this the week that it's released. So that would be April 27th through whatever the rest of the the week is on that. What is that? May 1st. So April 27th through May 1st of 2020. If you're listening to this in the future, you know, stand by. There's usually four enrollment periods per year. And with COVID-19 and all the other stuff going on this year, I wasn't sure if I was going to open it up in April or what I was going to do. But I can tell you that I've received many emails from people in the last couple of weeks that they want to enroll. They want to get into the course. And that said, I assume it's because number one, people want to get into a side hustle. Number two, People are saving time because they're not commuting to the office and hopefully they're able to work from home. I know a lot of people were laid off, especially in the hospitality industry and that sort of thing. But the point is the course is opening up next week, April 27th through May 1st. So if you're interested, if you've been waiting for enrollment to open up, now's the time. I'll put a link in the description. And again, I kind of, I don't have a big crew. I don't have a big team. I have two virtual assistants that help me out and it's just me. I like to have a lean, tight shop. So I I really am not trying to get the most students possible. I'm trying to work with people that are really motivated to get things done. 
So keep that in mind. And that is, you know, one of the reasons why I keep enrollment open just for short periods of time. All right. There's some other marketing ideas behind it too, but it does help me throttle down and make sure I don't have too many students at one time. And then I can help people out when they need it. So without further ado, I'll send it to the interview with Tyler Bishop. And thanks a lot to uh, Ezoic and Tyler for joining me. So let's, uh, let's get into it. Hey, what's going on? It's Doug Cunnington here, and I'm with my friend Tyler Bishop. How are you today? I'm doing really well. How are you, Doug? Doing awesome. It's a sunny day. I think we're going to get a few inches of snow tomorrow, but uh, yeah, good day so far. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm lucky enough. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest, so lots of snow there, but I uh, moved to a climate where I get my favorite weather all the time, which is late spring in the Midwest. I live here in Southern California where we're pretty much 60 to 70 degrees year-round, so... That is fantastic. And for the people that don't know you, Tyler, who are you and what do you do? Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm so I guess uh, I always tell people I'm an award winning marketer. If you're going to win awards for marketing, you got to tell people about it. Otherwise, what are you even winning them for? Uh, but I am the CMO of Ezoic, which is a technology provider for digital publishers around the globe. And uh, I have been with Ezoic for about five years now. And uh, I had some startup companies that I'd grown and sold up until then. And uh, so, and now I'm in my home office because, like a lot of people, uh, I'm in my home right now working remotely and uh, trying to do my part to stay indoors. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. Have you been able to, I don't know where you live exactly, but are there enough parks and stuff where you can go out for a jog and like kind of, do some normal stuff on your own? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'm lucky enough that I get to live in an area where we're not very uh, densely populated and I can kind of get outside, walk my dogs. Uh, I actually do have a park right across the street. So uh, I've been getting my daily exercise in. So it's been kind of nice. I've actually had a little bit more time because I don't have the commute back and forth from the office. So right on. Very good. Well, you mentioned a couple startups and we don't know each other that well. I'm just interested in hearing like what were your startups sure so uh my very first company ever was actually not my idea but i helped start it so uh i was part of a company called Livenew, which is a lot like uh the gallup organization and so uh Livenew was the brainchild of a gentleman by the name of louis ray louis was a partner at edward jones a large financial firm and the idea was to leverage the science of positive psychology to help people with both uh, financial and workplace uh, applications, uh, life planning, things along those lines. Um, and so we did a lot of surveys, things like the well-being index that you see now, the Gallup organization will often do. And so that was my very first organization ever and uh, was a successful period, uh, was working on that project for about five years. And then I helped grow another company called Datix, um, which uh, Datix uh, was a Microsoft and Salesforce partner for a long period of time, built a lot of really cool products uh, between those uh, two devices. And then um, most recently before Ezoic, I uh, had stops at Microsoft and a company called Ungerbach, which is an event management software. Um, and so in all those different instances, I was managing big global teams uh, here recently. And uh, at Ezoic, when I came on board, I was I was the sole guy. I was the marketer, which is kind of what I like. And uh, once again, we've grown into a situation where I'm managing a, a, a pretty good-sized team. And um, I used to always tell my my employees when I would hire them, I, 
I hate managing people. And uh, now it's probably one of my favorite things that I do. And it's it's partially because I've grown the team from scratch and um, really enjoy uh, what we've built here at Zoic. So um, yeah, that's kind of the quick and dirty version of my bio. That's awesome. Yeah, I had no idea. I like talking to smart people who have done cool things. So we're talking to the right folks here. Now, I don't know what your background is, uh, like education wise. So tell me about that. Cause you touched a lot of different areas. You're a marketer now award winning in fact. So yeah. How did you come into this sideways? Yeah. So, uh, I guess, so, uh, I graduated high school when I was really young. I grew up in a really small town. My mom was a teacher and, uh, was committed to making sure that I got a great education as fast as possible. So she was always teaching me at home. And, uh, so when I got to university, I was sort of kind of, I'd fell in love with a girl and I was trying to make my way through. And really when I got involved in my first startup, uh, we were growing the business and I was still in school and I was really young then too. And my goal was really just to get done as fast as possible so I could grow my business. And so uh, I graduated with a degree in mass communications from uh, Lindenwood University. And it's really interesting because uh, a lot of the things that I learned became out of date immediately. I mean, I had classes on search engine optimization and things like that. Um, and we're talking, you know, 12, 13 years ago before there were even smartphones. So most of that was irrelevant. But it's funny because a lot of the things I learned about like radio broadcasting and things like that, I use with a slightly different slant now doing things like this. And um, so that that's really what my educational history is. But really, it's been the things that I've got to... Uh, uh, the opportunity to be involved with um, throughout my my career, and some of it even just by happenstance. So um, I, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu along with my wife, who's a very accomplished black belt. Um, and probably around the time that I started my career, we also started a website uh, on Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And uh, it became really popular, and we grew that just kind of from scratch, just the internet marketing things that I had kind of picked up and built my career on. And so we got into digital publishing. It's something we worked on together. And uh, so lots of little pit stops in between lots of things and projects that are kind of personal in nature that have kind of uh, built this weird collection of expertise that I've been able to develop over time. And uh, after my first startup, I got involved with um, the state of Missouri had something called Arch Grants. And Arch Grants, they give uh, $50,000 equity-free to uh, companies that want to enter a competition um, for uh, growing startups that are based out of St. Louis specifically. And um, it was pretty cool. I got to basically judge a lot of those competitions, give advice, uh, primarily around SEO at the time. And uh, yeah, so uh, I've had an opportunity to kind of get exposed to a lot of different industries, spaces, uh, ideas, and things like that. And I've been really lucky to work with a lot of smart people myself. And I uh, just picked things up along the way. So my education is both, uh, I, I guess, kind of quick and from a from you know a traditional standpoint, but then also very long and storied as it relates to uh, career history. Yeah, and it's something you probably couldn't plan to make those pit stops along the way, but when it all comes together, you're CMO, <laughs> so yeah. it works out pretty well. Yeah, and it's one of those things you don't necessarily kind of plan. I, I I try to tell people all the time that you know uh, would try to plan out you know the next five or ten years. Uh, I I wouldn't have planned to be where I'm at, but if you were 
to uh, kind of looking back in, in time, I don't think that I would have even told you this would have been my plan, but this is definitely, if you look at all the different things that I've done, the, the position that I'm in now and the things that I'm doing are exactly what I would want to do. And uh, it's strange because I think sometimes you can uh, build the things for yourself that you would want, uh, but at the same time, uh, you don't necessarily know what that looks like. But as long as you kind of have a general idea, you'll be headed in the right direction. Awesome. Well said. So before we shift into some of the display ad topics that I want to get into, I uh, 100% forgot what I was going to say. That I, so <laughs> Happens to the best of us all. Um, that's my day-to-day. I live there. Damn it. I was like, this is such a, a meaty question. I'm going to seamlessly transition. Um, hold on. Give me one sec to remember what I was going to say here. Oh, all right. Before we transition over to some of the display ad topics, what is it that you like about managing people that maybe surprised you? Yeah, so uh, I mean, everybody on my team, like it used to be a motto (laughs) that Tyler hates managing people. And so I would always tell people through the interview process, which was pretty tough, um, I would always say, like, don't make me manage you, you know? Uh, And so, the part that I would say that I dislike is I really like taking ideas and bringing them to fruition. And the fastest and easiest way to do that for a long period of time was to do it myself. And over time, one of the things that I learned, and this is through working on big teams for a long time, managing lots of people globally, is that lots of people that had traditional marketing backgrounds, they were always trying to do marketing Um, So take an idea that was a marketing idea and then execute on it rather than really trying to look at a business goal or a business outcome and look at something as is how a business would. So kind of only operating within the marketing toolbox as opposed to saying, well, let's forget that we're marketers. Let's just pretend we're business owners. Like what what should we do here and what part of that is something that marketing can do? Um, And I think working backwards like that has served me really well. And so trying to find people that can kind of think that way and that are smart. And honestly, most of the people on my team don't have traditional marketing backgrounds. And so uh, the challenge that I think uh, comes with that is then you have to teach them how to be marketers in some ways. So in so many different ways, I'm teaching the different parts of my skill set that I've built up. Some things I'm better at than others, but at least I know how to do a lot of things. And I think the part that's really rewarding that I've enjoyed the most is teaching somebody the basics of something that I know and then watching them be better at it than I am, Um, whether that's writing or uh, web development. Um, I have people on my team that just naturally have kind of, you know, we all know there's people that are creative and can just, you know, Right, put put a pad of paper down and start drawing. Those same people can, you know, apply those same skill sets to design. And those, you know, as I like to think, writing is one of my better skill sets. But you know, you go out and you find somebody that's written books or something like that before, and you know, you're just surprised at how, you know, you're like, ah, oh, that was my idea, but you wrote it down better than me. And so I think that that's the part that I've enjoyed the most about managing people. That's cool. That's cool. I've. I didn't come at it the the same way back in my corporate gig, but I definitely hear what you're saying where at one point I was like, well, it's just faster if if I do it and I can do it my own way, but I need the people on my team to grow so that they can, can learn on their own and expand. And it turns out I'm not as 
good at many things as I thought I was. Yeah, so. I, I'm always learning that. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, th- that is the challenge. And I and I would say I'm better, I'm much better at that now, and more mature in that respect than I used to be in terms of doing something myself. Um, I think you reach a certain point as well as, as you grow and scale that you get so busy doing things you realize. You know, it used to be you could be so fast, you know, I, I want to do this, I'm going to do it right now. And then you start having these things that are really competing and then you realize I'm going to be the slow one now. And there's nothing that I hate more than moving slow. And so then all of a sudden you realize like the fastest thing I can do is teach somebody else to do it or after I've taught them to do it, throw it over to them and let them do it or at least get you 90% of the way there. And um yeah, I think that that's kind of the lesson in this. You have to see the fruit of that labor, just like, you know, the things you'd work on on your own. Right on. Okay. So I'm an affiliate marketer and I spent most of my time creating affiliate content, product reviews, and I stayed away from display ads. I was afraid it was going to hurt revenue, maybe mix, uh, mix up the intention of what I was trying to publish. And I know that there's different ways to do things. So what's a good approach for an affiliate marketer to start integrating display ads without, um, you know, wrecking everything that they have in place? Sure. And, and, and this is something that uh, recently I was talking to uh, some gentlemen from Empire Flippers and a, a couple other folks that were involved in uh, uh, brokering different website deals. And one of the things that they'd mentioned is they'd seen so many affiliate marketers start to uh, uh, deploy mixed revenue models recently. And uh, I'm a big fan of that. But one of the things that uh, I always will caution sites with or uh, tell publishers about is that uh, everything on a page that is basically not the content itself, talking about images, video, um, and then the actual written content, um, has the ability to cannibalize, take away, uh or eat away at the engagement of something else. And so um, when we just talk about ads, one of the things that I think people probably don't realize is that all ads have the ability to dilute each other, meaning you've got an ad at the top of the page and you've got an ad in the sidebar. Those ads are not necessarily additive, meaning a big ad at the top is worth a dollar, ad in the sidebar worth a dollar, together they're worth two dollars. Together they may be worth a dollar fifty. Together they may only be worth seventy-five cents because advertisers may adjust their bids because over time they're bidding on historical historical data. Ad at the top of the page may perform so poorly with the second ad there because it takes attention away that advertisers bid significantly less, less than half as much. And the same thing maybe for the ad in the sidebar. So you may be better off with one ad than two in some cases. And so the same thing works for affiliate links and pretty much anything else that you put on a page, whether it's a product, a subscription offering, even social sharing widgets, all those things have the ability to detract from the content, take away from reader engagement, affect the CTRs, the CPAs of the ads. And all those things may not be things that are affected right then and there. Meaning um, if I have an ad, again, that's a dollar at the top and throw another one there in the sidebar, I might get $2 today, but tomorrow those advertisers may adjust their bids. And the same thing happens with affiliate stuff. So whether you've got um, 
actual pictures of affiliate offers in the content itself or just hyperlinks, um, all that has the ability to detract from other revenue on the page. So if you click an affiliate offering and it makes the person leave the page, that could be taking away the value of some of the ads that you have on the page. So I talk a lot to publishers that monetize with ads and they always ask about affiliate offers. And one of the things I always bring up is, listen, it's going to affect the way that advertising performance of those ads on the page are uh, impacted. So if somebody's clicking on that and they're on, in most instances, buying something that's earning you earning you money, well, that's a pretty easy trade-off. But if the vast majority of people that click on that uh, end up not buying anything, you make no money off of it, it could be diluting your ad revenue to a degree that it's not really all that beneficial. So what you'd want to do is then show the affiliate stuff to the people that are most likely to buy it and and maybe not to those that don't. And um, the thing that I think uh, affiliate marketers should understand about ads is that Usually, there is a balance there that you can find, um, non-disruptive types of placements, lower density, things along those lines. Um, and you're better off testing than anything else to be able to understand what things may be uh, causing uh, users to leave sessions early or something along those lines. But session duration is a really, really good proxy for what may or may not be diluting the attention of your visitors. Okay. That is a really good explanation. And I've, I guess I came around to some of those ideas, although I didn't put it together with ads versus affiliate links and that sort of thing. So I know from, from my standpoint, when I see a, a page with like a huge menu and a bunch of social sharing and too many calls to action, it's just too many decisions for a yeah. person to make. It's overwhelming. And a lot of times they make no decision they may bounce off and, and they're like, it's too much for me. So just adding, adding display ads and affiliate links, like it, it all plays together. There's so many variables. So how can a person figure out like what the, what mix is right? Yeah. I mean, so originally that was the original idea behind uh, Ezoic and the technology platform was uh, it's a different for every visitor. So you and I may behave completely differently and, it goes beyond just you or I. It goes all the way down to an audience to the point to where someone from the U.S. and somebody from Sweden are going to get treated differently by advertisers as well. So um, in Sweden, the 250 by 360 is the most common ad size, which I've never used as a marketer in my life. It's just a weird ad size. The most common one worldwide is a 300 by 250. So you would want to swap those out. You'd want to say, okay, well, if Swedish vis visitors uh, in content, I'm going to show a 250 by 360. But for everybody else in the world, I'm going to show a 300 by 250. And you'll make more money that way. And the thing is, is some of those decisions are better off made whenever you kind of know how different visitors are going to be valued by uh, different affiliates or different types of uh, advertisers. Now, when you can't make those decisions on a per visitor basis, you have to look at it in terms of what is going to dilute the engagement of my content itself. So uh, the example that I used to use, and I, I'm sorry to these guys uh, because I, I always mention them. And one time they came to an event I was hosting at Google and they actually raised their hand in the middle and they're like, hey, Tyler, that's us. But I just want you to know that's not our department. That's not our fault. And it's Sports Illustrated. So 
they're on my mental blacklist because, uh, or at least they have been for a long time. They may be different now, but uh, Sports Illustrated used to drive me nuts because I would click a link. It didn't matter where I was coming from. Immediately, you got autoplay video at the top that as soon as you scroll, it starts autoplaying down in the sidebar and it's just hovering there with you. You get a pre-roll ad for the first 60 seconds, no matter what. And then you've got in-content ads. You've got recommended content in the sidebar and it's like all native stuff. And then you got ads in the content. Everything's taken forever to load. And meanwhile, the content's jumping around on the page because it's loading so much crap in the background. And you're like, I, I really cannot even just read. I want to read about how Tom Brady signed with the Buccaneers, you know, and I'm getting in there and it's like, other than the headline, I can't get any other meat out of this article. And so uh, my guess is they can look at analytics and they can tell pretty quickly that they have a large number of users. You can look at traffic source, you can look at geo, um, but just find some way to divide your users up and just see, is there one air, is there one big chunk of my users that are basically spending 10 seconds on the site? Are they not engaged? Is the bounce rate really, really high? Um, and it, if the answer is yes, there's probably a good chance that you have a set of users who are really unhappy with the experience and being able to adjust things so that they're having a better one um, and extending that session length. Those are the things that are typically associated uh, with more like better campaign performance. So it's one of the things that uh, inside of the real time bidding protocol, which is what advertisers use to bid automatically or programmatically across thousands of sites, if you're PNG and you want to run a shampoo ad, you know, and you want 10 billion impressions across the web in March, um, what you're going to do is you're essentially going to automate a lot of that. And the more time that users spend on the site, the, the better the chance they're going to click on ads, the better chance they're going to view them, which is something they bid on viewability. Uh, and then also the better chance they're going to buy something when they actually click on it. So, um, as an affiliate marketer, as someone that's trying to try out mixed revenue models or maybe even sell your own products if you have a store or something like that, um, one of the things we tell uh, some of the large brand publishers that su- that kind of have subscription revenue and things like that is you want to maximize the engagement time because the more time that someone is spending on a page, the more chances they're going to take up on ads or offers and things along those lines. Gotcha. Very good. And I think, you know, peppered in there, you mentioned some kind of classic mistakes that people might make when they're using uh, display ads in, in general, especially with other monetization methods. But do you have any like specific other besides the one you just mentioned where it's like a terrible user experience? Any mistakes that publishers make that is a pretty easy fix? Yeah, so I would say like one of the things that I, I think publishers um, probably try a lot and don't realize that they're making a mistake is they they consider everything additive. So this is something I touched on in the beginning where it's like um, all revenue is, is good revenue or all revenue adds on top of something that you have, but you don't realize necessarily that things detract from each other. So this works even if you're just looking at a pure affiliate model. Um you think about if you go down the cereal aisle at the grocery store, and this is something that I remember from my days of positive, positive psychology, but it's also something that, you know, obviously getting exposed a lot to data, the Zoic uh, learned is actually a, a principle that applies to advertising as well. And it's um, the paradox of choice. 
if you're essentially going down the cereal aisle and you have a billion different types of cereal, it's like, which one do you go with? You go with the one that you know or you try something new. There's just so many choices. And the same thing sort of happens when you have lots and lots of offers or lots and lots of ads on the page as they start to kind of blur together. Um, you get ad blindness. There's a lot of research done on those types of things. But generally, if you can kind of focus or hone those things in, um, you'll see things perform better. And I see recently um, the eagerness to try something new where um, I want to try this affiliate offer. I'm going to try to sell a product. I'm going to try to uh, Patreon. I want to try this new social media thing where maybe it embeds something that I can maybe earn some money off of. And you don't understand until maybe three six months down the road that it's been impacting your affiliate revenue or it's been impacting your ad revenue. Um, and I don't know that that's something people even know to look for in some cases where I'll see people inside of communities a lot of times post, Hey, uh, you know, I've got, I just started trying out this new, uh, subscription product and it's great. I've earned $300, but my affiliate revenue during that time period has gone down a lot. Any ideas on what I can do differently? And it doesn't even occur to that person that the subscription product may be taking away from their affiliate revenue and vice versa. And so one of the things I would, I would just caution people at is just test, be able to see if, you know, week over week, I look at things day over day sometimes just to figure out like if, Am I seeing a 30% revenue dip in one area and only an uplift of maybe 5% in another? Um, those things might not be related day over day, but like maybe I should keep an eye on that and look at it week over week because if it lines up similarly, there's a good chance it's, they're diluting each other. Well said. All right, shifting gears slightly. Um, you sent me some notes ahead of time, which was very helpful. Thanks for that, Tyler. No and I am, I'm pretty deep into YouTube, but I've used it as an extension of my platform from my blog and I have a podcast as well. And I know that this happened on like Facebook and Instagram more recently and any other platform where people are growing an audience and then they suddenly have to now pay to reach the audience that they've built. And YouTube has been pretty good. I mean, it's kind of a, you know, it's a huge search engine. And I know some people are actually building their platform on YouTube. And at some point they may have to, to shift and figure out how to, you know, make sure they can reach their audience. So I know that that walled garden can be a difficult thing to deal with. So how do you recommend people sort of approach uh, YouTube and, and maybe moving their audience to Google and having more of a holistic approach? Yeah. So, I mean, this is the challenge with digital publishing, the internet at large right now is, um, I have to be careful saying this. I'm a, I'm the CMO of a Google partner, but, um, the space is largely controlled by, uh, several large monopolies. I won't name any specifically, but they are, uh, really dominant. And as a publisher, um, especially an independent one, you have to ask a question like, how do I feed this beast without letting it eat me at the same time? Um, and also consolidating all the risk of my business into one place, even if it's really hard to do that. Like, how do I diversify at least a little? Um, and so one of the things that we've been trying to think about a lot recently, uh, specifically related to video, is so much video content is created and uploaded to YouTube. And unfortunately, unlike your an, uh, a web page or a website, you really have essentially two sources of monetization there where you can work directly and you can embed things 
on your own into your content, pre-reads and uh, direct relationships and, and things along those lines. And then you have the ad revenue through AdSense, which, you know, you just got to kind of just stick your hand out and say, Google, I'll take what you're going to give me. Um, if Google decides they want to take 10% more of the revenue tomorrow, like, what are you going to do? You're going to say, not this time? I don't know. So if you're, a, if you're a publisher, what you want to do is have the same kind of control that you have over a website, over your video content. Uh, but yet you still want the reach and the, and the ability to uh, attract audiences that you get through YouTube. And there is, uh, there is a small hack here, and I think it is something that largely has only been utilized uh, for the most part by big brand publishers so far. Uh, but I do think we're going to see that shift, and that is right now about 20%, uh, 20 to 30% of all uh, – uh, two, twofold here uh, – of all video views on YouTube actually come directly from Google Search, and about a pretty similar uh, percentage of – uh, Google searches results in a video click. So um, that means there's this huge portion of people out there that are essentially coming to YouTube directly from uh, Google search itself. And so what that means is that um, those publishers in particular have an opportunity to optimize their video for search. But instead of sending them to YouTube, um, you can self-host that video. And the thing that is a bit of a hack here is the fact that um, – Google cannot give precedent to its own properties. This is something they're getting hammered on right now. But if you're basically providing search results and you're going to include in video in those search results, but you're going to say, hey, we're going to only include videos from the properties that we own, that's a conflict of interest. And so they have to treat all video sources evenly. Unfortunately, almost all video that's indexable and crawlable to Google is on YouTube. However, if you go online right now and you Google search Trump, because it's a it's a news one, you're going to get a lot of video at the top. If you look at those video results in the carousel, you're going to see YouTube, YouTube, and then you're going to see CNN, you're going to see Fox News, and you're going to see some of these other large uh, brands. And when you click those videos, you're going to go directly to their site where they're monetizing that video with uh, a lot of different ad sources. And I can promise you the, the amount of money that they're going to make from pre-roll ads is going to be, in some cases, 10 times higher than what you see on AdSense. Not only that, you have control over display ads you could put on the page too, that you just get so much more control. And this is an area where I think that publishers have um, largely missed out um, because they just don't know that you can self-host the video and have the same chances of it ranking in search as it would on YouTube. So um, I do think that there is an ability, uh, especially now, for publishers to get off of uh, Google in some ways and get onto Google at the exact same time. So to get off of YouTube and, and into search results, and um, I would I would encourage publishers to start exploring that to some degree. And I, I don't think it's very hard, and it's something that I think we're going to try to help them with in the future. So two thoughts on that. One, uh, Tyler and I both love Google and YouTube. On the record, I think I'm speaking for you, but I'm sure you're okay with that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then that is a deep topic. And obviously I, I do a lot of video and I'm only scratching the surface of understanding the scope and the capability of what you just mentioned. So we may be able to do like a round two, a little deeper, um, something like that, because I know... We'll go very far in the weeds quick on something like that and the mechanics of setting it up. So anything else to add as far as 
um, like video search or, you know, some of the other aspects of it? Um, I would say that the biggest thing as it relates to video search is that um, self-hosting video is something you basically just need a web property for. Um, and it's something that I think uh, most publishers that are spending a lot of time building an empire on YouTube should at least explore setting up to, to some degree. Because I think if there's one thing that we've learned, and you can look at Facebook, you can look at pretty much any platform that's existed that publishers have leveraged, um, the publishers that have gotten really burned when things have pivoted in those different spaces has been that most of the time, those are the ones that are saying, well, they're not likely to change this, or this will always work that way. And the platforms almost always do something at some point to disrupt the way that things have always been. The one thing you can kind of count on, um, you know, 10 years ago, people were ready to jump from Google organic traffic onto Facebook because they were saying, Google's way too unpredictable. You have no idea how they're going to change their algorithm. I'm going to get over here on Facebook where it's safe, where I know that I can consistently get traffic. And then, you know, you now you think about that and you're like, that's the last place you can expect there to be consistent traffic is Facebook. They're changing their algorithm all the time. So if there's one thing that's consistent, it's the inconsistency. <laughs> indeed, indeed. All right, Tyler, where can people find you? So you can find me uh, personally. I'm on Twitter at, at Tyler Bishop. Uh, I'm from St. Louis. So that's uh, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey from St. Louis. I heard about it whenever I was in, in, in college. And so I was one of the first thousand users to that platform. So I got my namesake uh, right off the bat there. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Tyler Bishop BJJ. It's going to be mostly jiu-jitsu stuff, but hey, you can find me there. And then uh, I'm always writing and sharing information and things like that on Ezoic's blog and YouTube channel. So uh, you just got to find Ezoic on the internet and yeah, our social channels are out there. But uh, I'm pretty active as it relates to different articles that I'll publish. And then also I have a series of different um video shows and and uh educational series and things like that that i do through uh ezoic awesome we'll link up to all that stuff in the show notes and description thanks a lot tyler uh thanks a lot doug i appreciate you having me on and allowed me to kind of share some of my expertise and story with the audience Thanks again to Tyler. I know it's kind of a weird time and he and I were able to catch up while we were, you know, stuck at home. And you may know because you've been listening to some of the previous shows that we moved to a new house here. So I'm in my new office and I think it sounds pretty good overall. I do have a couple bookcases up now, which helped, you know, just having books and stuff on the walls reduces some of the echo, but hopefully the audio is not too echoey. I can hear the echo myself, like without earphones on, but I think because I'm using a a pretty decent microphone, things sound okay. But let me know, you know, shoot me an email at feedback at doug.show. You can let me know if the audio sounds good. I actually just put an order in to get some acoustic treatments that I can put on the ceiling and wall to hopefully reduce a little bit of the echo. Again, I think it probably sounds all right, but as I'm getting more into podcasting and video and understanding audio, I realize how important it is to have clean audio. So I'm really, really trying to do that. Before I finish up for this episode, I want to point out a couple 
articles that I'll, I'll put links in the description or show notes or whatever we call it here. But the Ezoic blog is very, very good. They have a recent article, I think it was published in March about page speed being a ranking factor. And they, they tested a thousand different queries and come back with like actual data and results. Another one is five ways to increase your AdSense revenue in 2020. And there are, I mean, there are dozens of, of articles that I found pretty interesting. I was featured on one along with a few of my friends and other people that have been on the show and that you probably recognize like Spencer Hawes, Ron Stefanski, John Dykstra. Let's see who else was on there. A few other people. Oh, uh, Morton, Morton uh, Storgard was on as well. So pretty cool blog. And the fact that they featured me on one of the, one of the posts is pretty cool. And that one is called digital publishing experts advice on managing changes from coronavirus. There's a couple other ones like uh, getting featured for the snippets in Google and mastering search intent and so on. So there's a ton of good stuff on their blog. Highly encourage you to check it out and just give it a look. There's it's super high quality. They, they have a big team over there and they're able to do really good work. Very impressive uh, from a just blogging perspective and how much data you can actually get. Actionable stuff as well. Let's go ahead and wrap it up here. So a couple things I want to let you know about. Number one, Five Figure Niche site is opening up for enrollment next week. That'll be April 27th through May 1st. And if you want to get more information, you can shoot me a, an email, feedback at doug.show. If you are not on my email list yet, you can head over to nichesiteproject.com, click the green button. I send you all my templates and systems, and then you join the email list. So I point you in the direction of hopefully interesting content like different podcasts, YouTube videos, and a lot of my blog posts. So have a look there. And I am also going to be interviewing Marty McLeod in April of 2020. That episode is going to be coming out next week as well. So we'll hear an update from someone who is a student of Five Figure Niche site. He's been able to quit his full-time job and he's been working online for the last, I don't know, like six months or so. And yeah, we get an update from him this year. So you can hear like, hey, your Amazon affiliate site still going going strong. How are people doing out there? And it's funny, I, I do get those emails probably, you know, a couple of times a week, no matter what's going on. It's like, hey, coronavirus is going on. Can people still create websites? Or if nothing's going on, they're like, hey, can... I still create a website. Is that profitable? Am I able to do that from my home or what, what do I have to do? So there's a lot of uh, you know questions like that that still come in constantly. There's a flood of them. I'm not sure 100% why. I guess there's a lot of shady people that are in the make money online area, but I'm not one of them and Marty is not one of them either. So you can hear it straight from Marty. Uh, check it out next week. Have a great day out there and we'll catch you on the next one.